You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin. Hey everyone, it's Michael Jamin. Welcome back to another Screenwriters Need to Hear This. We got a, a surprise twist for you today. I've done over 90 episodes and today we're taking a turn into the world of high literature and publishing, something I know very little about and I'm very pleased to welcome my next guest, Mr. Mike Sachs. And he comes from the, Mike, welcome. Let me, let me give you a proper introduction. I'm not done with you yet before I let you say something. So Mike is, aside from being a, uh, an editor at Vanity Fair, he's written in a number of books, I don't know, 11 or 12, something, a lot of books. He's uh, gotten his work in uh, Vanity Fair, Esquire, GQ, The New Yorker, Time, New York Times, Washington Post, McSweeney's, Radar, Radar Funny or Die. He was Die. Mad, New York Observer, Premier, Believer, Vice Max. It goes on and on. So this guy's from the world of literature. So thank you so much, Mike, for being on the show. I want to learn all about your experiences. Well, I'm from the world of literature, meaning yeah. I have no money and plenty of time. So this is a, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> nothing but, else to do. But why? Okay, but why was it that uh, I want to talk about your books and all that? But okay, so what attracted you to the world of literature, though? You know, my biggest dream was to get into TV. I mean, I, I wanted to write for Letterman. I wanted to write for SNL, uh -huh. but I didn't. I didn't know how to do it. I mean, I didn't know any writers. I didn't know anyone who knew any writers. Very mysterious world. So what I thought at that time was that I would write for the written page and then mm -hmm. be discovered like I would from double A or triple A to be pulled up to the majors. Doesn't work like that. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. But uh, over having done that for so many years, I just came to actually uh, prefer that, I guess, to any other medium. I've done a little bit of TV and a little radio and I do a podcast. Uh, in the end, it's you know what I came to love. I love the control. I love mm -hmm. the fact that there's no one over my shoulder telling me what to do, how to do it. And you know, I think if I were at 20, 21 to have gotten a job on Letterman or SNL, I would have been in heaven. I right. think now it sounds like hell, and I don't think I would have last uh, would last <laughs> a week. But but tell me when you say. No, can no, you get to do what you want because of that is that entirely accurate when you're getting a you know, when you're working with a publisher or even a magazine? Not always, um, especially when it comes to humor, which is one of the reasons I stopped writing humor for magazines. I mean, what I found is that most editors view themselves as um, humor writers in disguise, and if they hadn't, if they didn't have to have a job, they would be famous humor writers. So, a lot of them consider themselves humor geniuses, very high humor IQ. Uh -huh. Um, so I would get a lot of rewrites based on that. And also based off of, uh, uh -huh. I, would, I was writing a lot of, uh, stories and pieces based off of current news. So that goes bad very quickly. Yeah. So I prefer now what I've been doing now is self-publishing and putting out evergreen pieces where meaning it's not tethered to any sort of current news. Um, so, you know, when I look back at some of the GQ pieces, the Esquire pieces written in 2008, 2012, whatever it is, it just seems very dated. Um, the the humor that I love is always tethered to character, and it is not dated. I mean, even going back to Aristophanes or, you know, even, I guess, uh, last century, Charlie Chaplin, Woody Allen, Albert Brooks, Steve Martin, it's all character-based and that, to me, is what interests me now. And I wanted to bring that to the written page rather than have something that is, say, uh, you know, Trump's tweets from the Middle Ages or some shit that is not going to last. But but you've been on both sides of this because you are an editor 
at Vanity Fair. So you you obviously you're rewriting. You're telling people, you know what what's going to play in this magazine, right? So you, but you're also saying, and then humor magazines that you're also getting them on the other side. I mean, right? I mean, right. And I think I have that advantage of knowing how to deal with editors knowing what not to say not to drive them crazy and if they do mm -hmm. have a suggestion to usually you know it's not worth fighting over but right. my job in vanity fair is not to edit humor it's to edit hard news mm -hmm. preferably hard news rather than puff pieces and, Especially and had, yeah. how did you get that at vanity fair well you, I was, did, go ahead i'm sorry go ahead yeah i have another question yeah <laughs> yeah um i was you know it was one of those things that you just kind of stumble into. And I was down in New Orleans. I was living in New Orleans, working retail. Then I moved back to Maryland, working retail. And got my first editing job in DC, which is a very DC type of job. I was editing a newsletter for an association that provided shareholder information to large institutional investors. So DC has a million associations, a million groups. They all need editors for their newsletter. So I got this first job. From there, I got a job working nights and weekends as an editor at the uh, Knight Ritter Wire Corp, which used to put out uh, articles sent around the world. And then from there, the Washington Post, and then from there, Vanity Fair. So it was just sort of like stumbling into uh, one job after another, where at the time, what I really wanted to do was, was go to California, go to New York, and write humor. It just never really seemed to work out that way. I just kept getting these jobs. And on the side, uh -huh. what I would do on my own time, I would write for Mad and National Lampoon and then later New Yorker. Um, so it was just one of those things. Now, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have gone straight out to California mm -hmm. or to straight to New York rather than live in New Orleans and Maryland for a while. But, you know, you can't you do what you do. And I didn't have the balls to do it. I didn't know anyone. Uh, I didn't have anyone to tell me, hey, you can do this. To me, it seemed right. very mysterious. Like, hey, how do you go to the moon? I have no fucking idea. How yeah, but it was you, it was mysterious, but you still figured it out on this other. Like, that's the thing. You didn't know how to do it, but you did know how to do it for this other thing over here. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, that's the irony is that you stumble into what you end up want to be doing. And mm -hmm. I didn't if I had known graduating that it would have been the circuitous route i probably would have said screw it i don't want to spend seven years doing nothing working retail and mm -hmm. then trying to get into magazines but it just ended up working to my benefit where i think writing for the written page is really the best fit for me more so than writing for tv or the movies not to say that i wouldn't love to have a script produced and this and that but i do i think i've worked alone for so many years i wouldn't have the patience to work with uh, producers and that time frame, I like to put it work out and keep moving down the road. I don't like to stumble and sort of stagnate with the same piece. I've met writers who three mm -hmm. years later will meet again, working out, just trying to pitch the same project. Yeah, you know, we didn't go into writing for that. I got into writing because I loved it and I loved to write what I wanted to write. And I see too many writers out there, even in the in the comedy business, who are miserable. Um, and I always do try to remember this is why I got into comedy and into writing is because I used to have fun with my friends and I used to go home and write and enjoy myself. And if I ever lose that, it's not something that I would want to necessarily live with. So what I do have now is a two track system where I do make a living as an editor. Mm -hmm. And then on the side, I am able to write what I want, how I write, how I want to write it. Um, and I don't have to put out material that is not something that. Uh, is something that I would I want to put out. Everything I put out is what I want to put out. 
but how many how many hours do they do you devote to your side writing projects today well on an, on an average day how much they you know yeah how much do you do on the side i'd say at least six hours a day i mean i get up early you and... six hours a day on your non-paying like, you know, in other words you're not your non-vanity fair job you're non yes you know and that, yeah. that's always been the case i mean there's no other way to put out material whether it's articles or books than to just simply do it and it did take um me giving up a lot of tv watching and, a, and mm -hmm. a lot of drinking which i had been doing and just to sit down and make this my ocd compulsion where i have to do this every day and if i don't do it every day i'm miserable i'm just and, an and you've been mess. both traditionally published and indie published as you're talking about and and why don't you talk a little bit about you know the differences and why you one appeals more to you than the other well that's a great question now i think there's there's different elements to self-publishing versus traditional publishing if you have the opportunity to be a mcsweeney's or the new yorker certainly take it i think when it comes to self-publishing what i prefer is self-publishing books now i published about four or five traditional published books uh, when i first started and what i ended up finding out was in the end you can if you are competent as an editor and a writer and if you can find a good designer you can do all this on your own mm -hmm. and there's a lot of advantages to that the main advantage is in humor most producers most agents most publishers do not have our humor sensibility you know, I'd say their humor sensibility lies more in the hit radio market than maybe the alternative market, which I yeah. think most writers are into. So first of all, it's going to be very, very difficult to sell the idea that you want to an agent. And uh, that's the first step, which can take years. I know yes. a lot of people who reach out to agents with their humor ideas. And before they know it, it becomes something else entirely, whether it's now geared towards children, whether it's a mm -hmm. rom-com or whether it's this or that or YA novel. And then they're stuck with something that after a year doesn't sell anyway. Right. So, so they wasted a year on a project that they're not happy with. I don't think you need an agent now for books. In fact, I, when I say books, I mean comedy books. This is very specific. Mm -hmm. If you want to put out a comedy book that's like or similar to the Woody Allen books you grew up reading, to the National Lampoon books you grew up reading, to Mark Lehner, to anyone, Simon Rich, that you grew up reading, that is not going to happen anymore one and two it's not necessary for it to happen mm -hmm. any advantage that you have in the uh the mainstream market is can be reproduced on your own end much better well let's talk I mean, about that think, because you yeah. can't get into or it would be a lot harder to get your book into like barnes and nobles right well here's the thing too yeah everyone dreams about they're having their book in Barnes and Noble or an airport bookstore. Right. It doesn't fucking make a difference anymore. So you have one copy of your book in the humor section, which is next to the restrooms. I mean, how many people are going to be stumbling by it anyway? It's not going to be on the front table. Right. Okay. It's just not going to be. So when it comes to getting a book even chosen by an agent, skip the two, three year long process mm -hmm. and, um, put it out, out yourself because an agent typically doesn't even read the book and if they do read the book they don't typically understand the book what they're going to get is not much money anyway you know comedy doesn't bring in much money so they get you a three thousand four thousand dollar advance right that's not that's something you can reap on your own 
without getting that advance, by putting it out yourself and having 100% or not 100%, maybe 60% of the profit coming back to you. Mm-hmm. So what, what I have done and what I recommend people to do at this point, this has never been there's never been any time in publishing history where you could do this, where you could put out a book that looks professionally done. In the past, you'd have to buy 5,000 copies of your book and they sat moldering in the basement. Yeah. Now it's it's a purchase per, it's a pay per purchase. So if someone wants it, they'll pay for it and then it's published and it's not published until then. Do you, the pro- but do you get, this? I'm, I'm getting a little off topic, but do you, do you order a handful just so you have and send up with, you know, when people want signed copies? I mean, I love that's, Yes, it, um, it's the very specific process that I had, that I have, which is um, that you, uh, as well as writing it, putting it out yourself, designing it yourself, you have to market it yourself. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you want to get into that now. Yeah, or later, I do. But... Let's, let's talk okay. about that. Yeah. Okay. So I have a very specific process and I've been on the other end of this because I've been uh, as a receiver of um, these books at Vanity Fair, and we would get hundreds of books per week from publishers. Mm-hmm. And what publishers would do was they would send out willy-nilly all these advanced review copies, ARCs, mm-hmm. which would end up just being in the free pile at work, um, 99% of which is never even looked at, 99% of which isn't even right for the magazine. Right. So they would send out these books to me at vanity fair and it would be totally inappropriate for the magazine you know we don't do poetry we don't do humor we don't do sci-fi so why are you sending me the books now the disadvantage of that to the writers they end up in the free pile in a magazine like ours and then typically the editorial assistants will then sell these books to the strand or on line so you have these advanced review copies where no money is going to the author and they're getting these review copies before anyone else so what i've tried to do with with my own marketing is i'll order say 50 books Mm -hmm. and i'll pay for those myself it's cheaper when you when you're ordering your own book it's cheaper than it would be if you're paying for it otherwise and then i send it out to a very specific group it's more like surgical precision rather than going wide and that group consists of uh, comedians and actors and people who with one mention on their instagram can do more than a hundred advertisements can in the back of any magazine. Yeah. Be- beyond that, to get even more specific, what I'll do is I'll write the person's name, the, the receiver's name on the edge, the binding of the book. Mm. So they can't, or their assistant can't then sell it. I'd rather than just throw it out than it ending up being Why can't they sell it? Na- why couldn't they? Because well, they could they could cross it out. Uh, they could black it out. Or they could put, or they could sell it with their name on it. What different, like, of course. Matter. But who's who's going to want to do that? No one's really going to want to do that. Uh-huh. I'd hope. Um, it has happened in a few times that someone I you know I, I just out of curiosity, even before my book was was legally supposed to come out, it's being sold on Amazon. I was like, who the hell is selling it? And I've and I've uh, purchased a copy, and I'll see who then sold the book. And then would you give give them shit or something? Uh, no, I wouldn't. No. I mean, it's, it's just a lousy thing to do, but I'm not going to get into it with them. But by doing that, it lessens the risk. So you do that, you make a pinpoint marketing plan rather than spreading it out wide, which is another thing that traditional marketing staffs don't do. Typically, the marketing staff don't even read the book. They don't understand the book. They're con- mm-hmm. mostly consisting of 20, 30-somethings who don't have our sensibility and who are just sending out mass-produced um press releases or versions of the book that in the end don't help you and could even harm you. So this is a, these are things that I learned by putting out in a traditional uh, publishing venue. 
of things to do and not to do when I when I would at one point, you know, when I plan to put out books by myself. So it's really important, I think, to know just as importantly what not to do than it is what to do. Yeah. And what not to do is is to spend thousands of dollars and sending it to every person who's in media who's not going to be able to help you. Right. You're very targeted. It's so interesting because there's so much, you know, I'm new to the, the publishing world, but there's just so much overlap in terms of how Hollywood works and how the publishing world works. It's, uh, you know, because my, my mind was the publishing was a little more rarefied and maybe there was right. uh, no, it, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's still well, about no. selling. It, it, the thing is that you have to understand that I, I think I understand is that publishing is not a money business. Right. I mean, you're not going to sell a book for however much you might sell a comedy screenplay for if you did really well for yourself. There's not much money in it. So if you're mm -hmm. getting into it for money, I think you're doing it for the wrong reasons. But if you're getting into it for control, right, then it's for you. And then to have that control, why then give it to someone else to edit, to, to, to design, and then to market? Uh, right. It's then out, out of your hands for no reason because um, you've seen books comedy books designed and they over design comedy um more so than they under design it you know i'd rather have an under design look than i wish wacky... you could mention some without you know you know uh, well, without I'll, incriminating mention yourself. I'll mention so, uh, my own i'll mention my own that were I... that were over designed i'm um yeah, over design. And these were the first books that I put out, um, my interview books, and here's the kicker, Poking a Dead Frog, and then also my collection I'm gonna pull of, it up here. of short humor. I had to pay for those to be redesigned because I wasn't oh. happy with the original design. That you designed. Well, no, their, their oh. design I wasn't happy with. Oh, I see. You know, it would, I'll tell you the typical look. It would be a, um, a chattering teeth on, on, on a bench with than with a microphone placed at it you know it would be like a banana peel next yes. year it's just something shit. that says comedy right comedy right right because marketing uh swears by the fact that this will sell more copies it has to do this and it's all a bunch of bullshit anyway but, but here's the thing does it though i mean they must have the numbers they, they must not just say it like i'm, I'm completely with you because i'm going through all this now but are they right no, they could be, but do you want your you want your book to have a chattering teeth being interviewed? Right, right. Sitting exactly. up, sitting on a bench. I mean, I don't. So it sells a, another thousand copies. Who gives a shit? I don't. You know, when you look at the classic books, especially the Woody Allen um, compilations, they're just white on black. I mean, right. it's very very simple. You don't need something screaming out comedy. These are not a, a collection of hamburger puns we're talking about here. This is. Unless it is a collection of hamburger pop. I'm talking right. about comedy that I grew up reading and I want out there. You're not going to get a cover that you're probably going to be happy with if yeah. you go traditional publishing. Right. It's so interesting. Because I'm going through, as you know, I'm going through all of this now and everything you're saying is truly resonating with me. Uh, that's why we, we, we talked a couple weeks ago and it was so helpful. I want to even, I want to even mention, I want to talk about some of your work because you sent me, you're very kind. You sent me some ARCs uh and other well you said a bunch of stuff let me let me let me put it up on the camera here we're going to talk about this this is your poking a dead frog this is a book about we interview some really great comedy writers uh woodmont college which is a fun read i want to talk about that as well but but first this is um this is the first that i the book that i first dug into and i have to say mike i, I think you are an artist i really do because i i do but i mean that he's being he's blushing you can't see it on your, your podcast but the, the book 
to me it's it's uh it has a very like almost indie underground vibe it to me and to, tell me if, if you're if i'm wrong if this is not what you meant when you when you when you wrote it to me it was like it's a very the premise is very interesting it's a uh it's almost like a russian nesting doll the premise of this book is you the author are going through a garage to a garage sale you stumble upon uh this this odd book that is written that it, that it is the account of someone's life. Okay, the book that you wrote is called Randy, the full and complete unedited biography and memoir of the amazing life and times of Randy S. So you as the author go into the, this you know garage sale or whatever, and you find this book written by this some some schmuck. Some, some schmuck wrote it about his friend or whatever, a guy he knows. And what's so interesting, and then, then, you, t then you share the, the book. And so what's interesting to me, what I found very interesting, even about the premise of it, it's quite quite brilliant. It is basically, first of all, you're saying, look at this amazing book. I didn't I didn't write it. I have nothing to do with it. I just found it. It's amazing, and already you're hyping it up. But you're also distancing yourself from it, saying, well, if you don't like it, it's not, it's not mine. But you're <laughs> yeah, also saying, exactly. here's a schmuck that <laughs> the story is about. The book is about you know here's a schmuck who wrote about another schmuck, <laughs> and look how amazing it is. And and that's what I find is so. Uh, it's so almost indie. It's, it's like I said, it's like a Russian nesting doll. It's like okay. no one, no one has any attachment to this book, <laughs> to this story. Here is this great story. I thought that was a very funny premise of it. Well, thank you. No, that's really a, actually a good way to describe it. I mean, I always wanted to write a current day Medici book where some idiot is pays a an unemployed writer to write about his life in flowery terms. You know, mm -hmm. rather than it be 15th century Italy, it's or Florence, it would now be uh, 21st century Maryland. So that that was one premise. And then on top of that, it would you know be a very mediocre life written a very flowery yeah. uh, type of way. But what I do love is found <clears throat> artifacts. You know, I I genuinely love finding shit, whether mm -hmm. it's self published memoirs or whether it's old novelizations or whether it's the, that to me is fascinating. And what you mentioned really hits at the crux of it is that I'm not putting this book out. It's I, I'm two characters removed from the person yes. writing it. Right. And by doing that, by putting out a book like this, it's like playing a character acting role where I'm not the person. And if you don't like it, it's really not my fault. Right. And right. by doing that, it frees me up as a writer to then take more chances because the margin of error is higher. If you don't like that joke, I had nothing fucking to do with it. I'm just That's reprinting it. Right. That's exactly my point. Yes, exactly. And that's what's so interesting about about this, because usually you write a book, you have a narrator, and the narrator might even be talking about their life. But you are, like you said, you're two steps <laughs> removed. and You don't even know who to believe uh, is describing the story. Well, I'll tell you what I always think of. And, and that's Steve Martin. He was being interviewed about Pennies from Heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, I can't dance. But if I play someone who can dance and maybe not well, but if I play someone who's dancing, then uh -huh. I can do it. So he's not even dancing. It's the character who's dancing. Right. And I always view that as, as what I'm trying to do is just like, have fun with it. I'm not the person in this book. My name isn't even on it. Hopefully my, my father always used when he was alive, would say, why is, why is your name? Why are they not on these books? Uh -huh. On the re-release, it was, but on on when I put it out myself, my name was not on any of these books. And to me, it's part of the joke. I don't. I want people to think it's real. I don't right. want them to think that I wrote it. I want them to come across this and say, "Oh, 
someone is republishing a shit self-published memoir that someone, an idiot in Maryland, published <laughs> in 2013. Right. That, that really is my dream. Yeah, I, and that's what's so funny about it. It's very, that's why I say it's almost underground. It's almost, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's what's, I guess my question for you is when you wrote this or any of your writing, are you thinking of, are you thinking of the audience or your reader in mind, or are you really just like, this is what I want to do? It sounds to me, I already know the answer, but. It's never what the audience necessarily wants. I mean, I found that by even writing Twitter jokes, if you put out what you think the audience is going to want, then I think it's not going to hit as hard. And that's part of the problem with what I had freelancing for magazines. What are the editors going to want? And then what are the editors going to want for the readers? And so you have to sort of, you're not even running for yourself at that point. But for these projects, right. by not by skirting around having an agent, skirting around having a publisher, you can do whatever the hell you want. And by you, I mean it, me in this case. Mm. It's just these are projects that I just have an itch to scratch. I right. don't know why. Right. And there's no no one on earth who I think necessarily is the perfect reader for this. I just know that if I stumbled upon this book in a bookstore or online, I would fall in love with it. And that is really – I'm trying to, uh, to please myself. And it's a very specific thing. I mean so specific that – It'll sell a few thousand copies. This is never going to be in an airport bookstore. It's never going right. to be in any bookstores. I mean, it's sort of like the underground radio I used to play in New Orleans when I worked for the radio station. I love these groups, but they never would have been played on on um, main. But that's why I say radio. you are an artist because you are doing this for the with the purest of intentions, which is not cashing out. It's it's like this is your expression. No, it isn't. But I have found. You know, one, it goes back to my OCD, where if I don't do this sort of thing, I'm a, I'm a mess. I'm a depressive mm -hmm. mess, an anxious mess. The other thing that I've noticed is that by putting out these type of books and by generally not giving a shit if anyone likes it, people do. The, the right people mm -hmm. do tend to like it. And right. with, with my upcoming book, I have a ton of actors and comedians who have liked the past books, John Hamm and Paul Rubens and Amy Sedaris, who want to be involved in the next project. Again, I don't think it's going to certainly make them any money and it's not going to make me any money, but it's just what I like. I genuinely like this. I, I'd rather watch an Albert Brooks stand-up bit from the 1970s than any of the most popular sitcoms or reality shows on. Now, that's just my um, what I like, my personal like, and this is my personal like when it comes to books, very specific, it's not going to appeal to many people. Uh, but I have found that by putting out what you want, how you want, it means more to people, the right people, the people you respect, the people mm -hmm. whose sensibility you got into the business to try to impress. It has impressed those, those people. Tell me though, cause this takes me to like, when you submit to let's say McSweeney's or, you know, any of these places, then are you writing are you writing with them in mind to like this is what they want to buy or are you just like I, I wrote something and maybe they'll like it maybe they'll like it well it's you really do have to take in mind what the who you're sending it to and i know this having been friends with mcsweeney's editors they receive a ton of material that is not right for them right so don't waste their time by sending them something that is not going to be appropriate for the site you really do and that goes for anything that goes for vanity fair in new yorker or anything you have to know 
what they're looking for. And you can't be obnoxious about it. You can't say, this is a great piece. I want you to publish it, even though it's not right for the site. This is their site. I mean, this is right. That's up to them. And they have every right in the world to say, this but is are right you for personally us. writing right for right. them or do you just have, or are you just writing in and you go, maybe they'll like it. Well, if I have an idea, I'll, I'll go through my mind. Would this be better for McSweeney's or New Yorker? And then you right. write, you do have to play to the interests of the editors. You do have to play mm -hmm. to what, what they're looking for style wise. You know, if you're writing, I, none of these pieces would be submitted to the Shouts and Murmurs set at New York. I just know that it wouldn't be accepted and right. they'd have every right not to accept it. But if I, if there is a, an idea that does coincide with, uh, in, with style and format to a specific magazine, I'll start thinking in terms of that and I'll start writing in terms of that. Um, you do have to make it easy for the editors. They're, they're not going to want to rewrite to take the time to rewrite what you're sending them they want something coming in appropriate for the site or magazine and and as clean as can be and if you're difficult in any way even if you're a genius they're not going to want to work with you again and then and, and they do give you notes they give you feedback and you got to take that you know right because they, that's what they want well what i found is typically the notes just consist of uh editing out okay. you know which is fine rather than putting in which was my problem with uh, magazine writing was they would put in their own jokes. I'd rather just, them, right. I, I'd rather overwrite and have them take out. Now, aside from being a, a, a really, a, an honor, let's say to be in the New Yorker, how, do, how does it help you as a, your career? I don't know if it does. I mean, I, uh, embarrassingly enough, I never read the New Yorker until I was 25. Maybe mm -hmm. I didn't know from it. Right. Um, and then once I did, I fell in love with it. I mean, I remember the first piece that I read in a public library in Maryland. I just was blown away. I don't, it certainly doesn't hurt, but I don't think that, especially now with the daily shouts and murmurs, um, I don't think that will get you an agent automatically. Mm -hmm. I, I do think good things can come from it. Uh, agents may reach out and if you have enough pieces, you could put out a book, but I don't know if it's a magic key to any kingdom like it perhaps used to be oh you think it's because you think it's why do you think it's changed then i just think there's more opportunity out there for writers they can put mm -hmm. out there's a million places you can put up your own website and potentially be as read as by as many people as uh, readers as the new yorker has i mean this right. is all new this you know when i was first starting out um this was pre around the beginning of the internet very few options so there was crack magazine there was playboy mm -hmm. there was new yorker uh, Mad Magazine, and uh, maybe the end of National Lampoon. So six, five or six choices. Now there are thousands of choices. And if it's good, um, it doesn't really matter necessarily where it is, as long as it sort of stands out from everybody else. See, the thing is, the, ga the, the, the game has changed so much, even in the last, let's say, even 10 years about how to make it as a writer, but I think, or screenwriter, and I think so many people are still hung up on playing the game the way it used to be played for some reason. I can't figure out why. I think so too. And um, that is something I try to tell young writers is that you don't necessarily have to play. If the game is working for you and you're getting in the New Yorker and you're you're getting an agent, fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way to do it. If you're not, you have to come in the back door mm -hmm. and that there e even is a backdoor, I think, is a tremendous opportunity right. because, I mean, you know, TV writing, uh, how many voices would we not have heard writing for TV 30 years ago? I mean, a lot. Yeah. The avenues are much bigger now to hear, a, which is better for comedy, a lot 
more voices, different styles of voices. Mm -hmm. There are fewer gatekeepers than there used to be. Now um, you never, and you to, never did. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and and to spend years of your life trying to do it the way that someone in the 1980s did, right. I don't think is conducive to any sort of success. Do you think it's do, so? What what is is? Do you think it's just ego driven? Is is that I want that pat in the back of of having it in the New Yorker? I want the pat or the pat in the back of traditional publishing or whatever. Maybe I mean it. It's I think it goes for anything, but I think it's sort of basing your wants on a on a philosophy that doesn't have to exist anymore. It's like a restaurant trying to appeal to zagats. I mean, do, do they have to do that anymore? Right. Do you have to appeal to only the New Yorker editor? Can you not put out um, what you want, how you want on your own? And that that's another thing. You don't have to write for New Yorker. Uh, if you want to get into comedy, you can put out videos, you can put out stand up, you, you mm -hmm. can put out a one person show, you can put out a fake document. I mean, there's a million things you have to do. So to tailor your creativity into a mold that you, you don't want to fit in, I don't think is 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 worth spending your time because there is no end of the rainbow necessarily. Even if you do get into New Yorker, I don't think your life is going to change mm -hmm. to the point where it might have been worth it. Uh, spending four or five years trying to do so while not using that time to put out your own thing. Right. You hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you. And it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. So it's not like you are constantly trying to come up with ideas and submit to the New Yorker. It's just like, eh, if, if, you know, if you have something, you'll give it to them. Well, I did. I spent years doing that, uh -huh. um, you know, even before that McSweeney's and I love them both. Uh, you know, I read them every day. I think the editors are amazing. I just don't, you know, my, the ideas that I wanted to put across, whether it was a fake novelization, whether it was a, a found fake memoir, whether it was a parody of a college catalog, right. whatever it was, didn't fit into that realm anymore. And right. I could have spent three years trying to get these books in there and they probably wouldn't have. And even if they had, how would that have helped me? I think you really need as a young writer to sort of discern what you want to do and mm -hmm. how you want to get it across and what's the best way to do that you know what's the best trojan horse to get your idea into that castle what's the best way and if it doesn't consist of trying to get into new yorker with a 1000 word uh, short humor piece for shots and murmurs don't feel that your writing is any lesser mm -hmm. uh, for not having for fitting into that category um you, there's a million ways now that you can get out your creativity and you don't have to go through traditional gates the thing that I, I wanted to mention earlier is you were because you, you said this is like it's really about you can wait you can spend years writing something or submitting something and waiting for the yes or waiting for someone's permission to take and that waiting is fucking terrible but and if you put it out yourself if you put your energy into something more comes from it you know what i'm saying if you, the more energy you put the more creating you do the more things that will happen if you just stop waiting around stop sitting around begging you know Totally. I mean, if you're going to wait for permission to achieve success, you're going to be waiting a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And really, 
this uh, this philosophy did not come from me to me from writing it came from music i grew up in dc and i grew up around uh discord records which put out mm -hmm. minor threat and fugazi and i always mention them because when i was growing up in the late 80s 90s they were doing this is pre-internet and they're putting out music on their own terms and to me out of dc it was a miracle i had never heard of such a thing mm -hmm. uh and they put out what they wanted how they wanted and to this day ian mckay who ran discord records owns all the rights he only put out what he wanted and he is living the good life. That to me was really what influenced me more than anything. And after years of trying to break in, even when I did sort of break in, I found that it really wasn't worth it. And it there is, worth. well, there's no, you know, it's not like you're tenured as a professor. Even if you get into New York, it doesn't mean you'll get in again. And right. even if you're in, in New York, it doesn't mean you'll get an agent. And if, even if you get an agent, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to publish your dream project. Right. So I think really in the end, and we have this opportunity now to do so, you have to be in charge, good or bad. You have to put it out and just keep on moving. Don't stagnate. And, and I and stagnated for a long time. You did cannot, you? I did because, oh, you know, I would think of ideas and I would submit it and it would be accepted or I'd go to certain agents who handled my favorite writers and they didn't like it and it would bother me you feel like and a failure you feel like a failure but even worse you waste time and, and what you find is as you get older is time really is the most important precious thing because yeah. there is limited time uh once you learn your craft to be able to put it out and yeah. if you're being if someone is gumming up the system by saying for whatever reason I don't want to take on this project. I don't think it's worthy. Well, who gives a shit? You don't need them anymore. You don't fucking need them anymore. Put it out yourself like you would a garage band record mm -hmm. and then keep moving. But whatever you do, do not stagnate because before you know it, 10 years have passed and you have produced nothing. Right. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more depressing, soul crushing than that. No one got into writing to be prevented for 10 years from doing something. That's hell. And that out of everything is what you need to avoid is you need to keep moving down the path. But the, the, the little X factor I think people forget about is the marketing aspect. People think, well, how do I, I can write it, but how do I get people to see it? How do you know, read it or whatever? I'll tell you, it's not as hard as you might think. The fact that word gets out there, especially in small communities. Uh -huh. and small in, communities. In small Go communities. On. So this small community I'm talking about is comedy. People who read written word comedy, people who love written word comedy. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a somewhat small community. And so what, you can, where do you find this community? You find them online. You find them uh, on podcasts. You find them on yeah. Instagram. You find, uh, say, Patton Oswalt, who loves reading comedy. Maybe he'll like this book. You send it to him. Right. You know, if it's, if it's a smaller project and you send it to, to someone who is famous, I don't think they're going to be upset about it. Um, if you said this is part of the marketing, hey, Pat, and I'm a big fan of your work. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I put this out myself. If you liked it and only if you liked it, would you mind mentioning something online? Right. And most people who are in comedy remember what it was like to start off, know what it's like to get a praise from someone who has followers and whose work means a lot to others. That's really how you spread the word. Uh, if you're trying to you know, if I took any of these books and sent them to a New York Times reviewer, they wouldn't know what the fuck was going on. And right. quite frankly, I don't know if the review readers would know what the fuck was going on. So you also do have to know your audience. Uh, it's like 
the alternative music I listened to in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was at Tulane in New Orleans, working for the radio station, you know, you appeal to those who like this music and it's new. So it's not going to appeal to everyone. And then hopefully a few years later, it will appeal to everyone. It does take some time. So, but until that point, you have to send your records to the college DJs. You have to send your records to people working in record stores. You have to, you know, pinpoint out who you're sending to the people who are going to spread the word, the people who are coming up now and who, who like uh, comedy and who are going to be able to talk about it with their friends. And why not though, I'm asking you personally, why not, and I again, I think I know the answer. Why not write something more mainstream that you think will sell or whatever people will love? I, I just don't have any interest in that. I mean, it's like, why do I not listen to Taylor Swift? I respect her. I think she's amazing, I, I guess, in theory. But I would rather listen to, uh, right. you know, Portland the Man or whatever the music is. And I don't think that I I, I appeal. You just sort of reach a point in your career where you, where you have to say to yourself, I don't appeal to the mass amount of people. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I show these books to my relatives. They don't know what the hell is going on, which is fine. It's not for them. It's not for so, everyone, yeah. I mean, I think really you, you have to put your head down and not even worry about that. But if it does come to uh, you sell the maximum amount that the, that the public is interested in, well, that's just the way it is. I mean, you know, no one writes uh, to, I don't think, to be popular. And you can sort of tell. I think uh, like a Paul McCartney and Elton John were just lucky enough to put out the records they wanted and it appeals to everyone. But most right. people aren't that lucky. And I am one of those. I don't think that even if I wrote something to the top of my ability that I was completely happy with, it would ever appeal to more than maybe 5% of the readers. Well, here's here's the, the that's a good segue to this your, this other book that you wrote, Poking a Dead Frog, and this is available I'm sure everywhere, right? Uh, and these are conversations that you had, you conducted with, you know, top comedy writers. And I think for this is particularly the place for because I have I have a big audience who are into this, they should go check it out. There's a lot of really interesting conversations. Uh, you know, well, some were actors, you know, Bill Hader, but you also have I'm just going through the list here. Uh, yeah, yeah, James Downey, a lot of a lot of Saturday Night Live writers, uh, James L. Brooks. You, I, you had a huge. I mean, you got a a lot of people. Even my buddy Mark Maron. You had a lot of people, a lot of really great people. You know that you found. How, how did this come about? Well, that was through selfish reasons. That's the second book that I put out of interviews. The first book came out about five years earlier. That's called "And Here's the Kicker," and um, this is another case of of put you know wanting to do something and being prevented from doing so that book that first book and here's the kicker where i interviewed comedy writers was rejected 20 times really by publishers the only reason why it was finally accepted was that I'm, i was friendly with an editor who used to work at mcsweeney's named john warner who was working for a smaller publisher in the midwest called writer's digest it was only because of that 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 book came out. That book came out when there was no podcast. Very little was out there about writing about comedy. I put it out only for the express selfish purpose of being able to talk to the people whose work meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to them and pick their brains about how they got to where they got, what worked for them and what didn't work for them. Another thing was a lot of them were, were dying off. This was the first generation of comedy writers. Quite a few people I interviewed for that book uh, were in their 70s and 80s and 90s, and they passed away shortly after that book. How came did you out. get so, contact with them? Well, it, 
you know, <laughs> what I found funny enough was the easiest people to contact were the older writers who mm. were all on AOL at that time. Mm. Uh, they would get right back to you. They would, not their assistant. Usually the font would be like 46 point. It'd be huge yeah. font. Uh, but they always got back to me whether they wanted to do it or not. The ones who didn't get back to me were the younger writers uh, who either had their assistants uh, say no or just never, I never, and to this day, I haven't received an answer from a lot of young writers, but the older writers always got back to me and usually said yes. In one case, I I wanted to interview a comedy writer who worked in the early days of radio, comedy mm -hmm. writing. So at that point in 2007, 2008, there weren't many around. Uh, I reached out to someone who ran a newsletter on uh, radio comedy shows, and, and he sent me a list of writers who still might be around. Out of that list, one was still alive, and I just happened to call the town council where she lived I said, do you know a Margaret Lynch, a Peg Lynch? She wrote for uh, radio. She goes, yeah, 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 Peg Lynch. We know her well. I said, she's still alive. She goes, yeah, she, there, she's alive. She's 95 and she's doing well. So I called her out of the blue. Uh -huh. And I think it was a case of her thinking like, why has no one called me before? And <laughs> talking to her was really something. I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with her, but after doing research, after we hung up and I said, can I call you back? She basically invented the modern sitcom she had a radio and a tv show called ethel and albert mm -hmm. and she wrote i think thirty thousand scripts for radio and for Jesus. movies Jesus. Uh, some of them lasting 10 minutes or so but it was all based on real life it really was seinfeld before seinfeld uh -huh. and the stories that she came up with uh, for instance one was she grew up in minneapolis outside the mayo clinic her mom was a nurse there at 14 years old uh peg lynch took it upon herself to interview celebrities path passing through the Mayo Clinic for her little radio show that she had in town. The first person she asked to interview was Lou Gehrig when he was at the Mayo Clinic being diagnosed with ALS. And right. Lou Gehrig said yes to that, wow. which I just found incredible. Uh, she also interviewed Newt Rockney when he was passing through the Mayo Clinic. So just to be able to, to talk to these people from another world, a uh, bridge to another time, that was really my selfish reason. I didn't think the book would would sell. I didn't think it re would really do well. I just wanted a product that I could have it as an excuse to be able to talk to, to all talk these to great them. writers, some of whom and most of whom maybe readers that weren't even familiar with. This was just my Here's going after readers, uh, writers that I liked and writers that I sort of stumbled upon. But but poking a dead frog, and again, comedy students should pick this up because it, it is helpful to hear you talk about people's processes, how they broke in, not just how they broke in, but also what writing, how, how they approach the material. And it's just very interesting. But but th this must have been an easier sell, no? Yeah, that was easier because the first book did well. So by oh, the time okay. that came around, I did get an agent and he did sell it. I did get it in advance. So that was much easier. But it, it also started coming around that people were talking about comedy more, analyzing comedy. Comedy, uh, having websites devoted to comedy. Mm -hmm. But when the first one came around, there really was not much out there. It, it and was how really... are you conducting these interviews? Just over the phone? Yeah, typically I prefer over the phone. But some of them, person. some of them looked like they were just, they weren't interviews. Some of these pieces looked like they were just submissions, like you told, you know, hey, write something for my, you know, tell me about your process. They've submitted you something. Is that right? Like Mark Maron. Specific. It, like I, it seemed like Yeah, he... well, Mark Maron. 
you know, that that's a case where I actually didn't even reach out to Mark. It was someone who was doing interviews for me. He reached out to Mark. Mm-hmm. But in other cases, it was like, hey, show me what it's like to submit a packet for a late night show. Can you right. show me your packet? And they yeah, would send me your packet. But in most cases, it was me talking to them either uh, on the phone or in some cases in person after many, many, many hours of research. Um, and that was part of the problem. I didn't know how good they would be to talk to until I, you know, after I did all this research. So in a lot of instances, I interviewed research, a lot. Though? Well, I mean? mean, for each each of these interview subjects, I would do 20 to 30 hours of research, reading everything they wrote, reading oh. every interview they've done. Oh. And, and you really don't know what they're going to be like until you talk to them. So in a lot of cases, a lot of people did not make the book because either through my fault or, you know, the way they were feeling that day or whatever, it just wasn't jibing. So um, even after having done all that research, I would uh, have to just uh, trash the interview. So what you see in that book is really maybe 60% of the interviews that I conducted entirely for that book. Oh my God, because it's not not a thin book. Uh, That was a lot. That was a long year, man, putting that thing together. I mean, it took a year, huh? Yeah. Wow. I mean, so yeah, it's just interesting that you even like Mike Schur's in here. I mean, yeah, Mel Brooks, uh, you know, Amy Poehler. A lot of really interesting people being talked about their, you know, their their craft. I thought that was very interesting. Now let's talk real fast about this one, <laughs> Woodmont. This is your your phony, um, you know, college brochure, uh, and it's pretty funny. What what is the audience for this? Like, where, like it seems like this would be great to leave. In, in a dorm room somewhere <laughs> but no what fucking were you thinking idea. i mean well what i was thinking was that was that um i wanted it to be confused with a real with a real college catalog um, uh-huh. i thought that it was sort of ripe to be made fun of because those catalogs are pretty ridiculous um unfortunately the first publisher we took it to uh, i have nothing bad to say about them but they wanted to put it out in digital form only which uh-huh. they did and it looked good mm-hmm. but i wanted something tangible that you could sort of send to people and um i then so they, took it to a go ahead go ahead, please I, I took it to another publisher uh who was willing to put it out in um in hard copy form and where does it get sold then it's it's online you can find it uh-huh. anywhere it's on amazon it's, I mean, it's pretty woodmont. funny welcome to woodmont and they're the uh their, i guess their motto is no no refunds <laughs> right it's all money based i mean i think <laughs> It costs one hundred fifty thousand per semester to go there. It's just the shittiest boutique college you can ever imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny read. Yeah, but and but that's what I say when like, this is just something that you wanted to do, and you say you did yeah. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people might think why, and I don't have any answer for that. There's no good answer. I don't know. I mean, it did okay. People seem to like it. It did it change my life? No, but it just seemed like I had to do it. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I've been because I, I perform. I've been doing some performances. My my little one man show. And every night when I before I go out, you know, the, you can hear the audience, and I'm backstage, and I'm starting to get nervous. And I always ask myself this question: Why am I doing this? Yeah. And then the only answer I've been able to come up with is because I can. Yeah, but it's it's more than can. I mean, you you can go to Mount Etna and try to climb it, but you're not. So what is it about doing that? It's that you need to you want to want to share it yeah some scratch some itch that needs to be scratched very specific itch you could be home relaxing with your wife and family but you're out at this club at 11 o'clock at night why so i mean the question is really why are you doing it what is it about doing that 
that you need to do that you would prefer doing over not just doing nothing. Relaxing. Right. Right. And that takes me to my last thing. My last question for you, because you've had one of the one great honor, I would suppose, of your career is that you've gotten to open for David Sedaris. And I want to talk to you a little about that. I mean, so yeah, you, which pieces are you reading or were you did you read? Uh, I would usually write these pieces special for these shows. I mean, I have oh. been doing this for a little while now, and I, I found that the pieces I would write for McSweeney's in New Yorker wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. connect with a live audience. But what David does, he's such a genius, is that he'll write these pieces that appeal to not only a live audience, but also to an audience at home reading internally. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any other writer who does this. Mm -hmm. And by the time he turns in a piece to New Yorker, he'll know what jokes work and what jokes don't. I mean, it reminds me of what the Marx Brothers used to do. They used to travel around performing these movie scripts live to see what what jokes worked and what didn't. So he's really unique in that sense. But what I, when I would read these pieces, um, the reaction would not be that good. So I sort of had to tailor these pieces to a live audience. And it's it's a lot of work. I mean, uh, these pieces are really meant to be read once, twice, three times, and then they're never heard from again. Mm. And um, But it is a, an absolute thrill to do this because I have been out on tour where I have read to literally no one. I mean, no one has shown up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I refuse to go out on a book tours now because of that. I don't think one sells many books. So it's like being in a bar band where never no one shows up to like right. opening for the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's just huge. And uh, the fact that he allows me to do that. I mean, there's no one of his caliber who is as giving to other writers and readers yeah. as, as he is. He's just spectacular. And He's how did best. you how did you meet him then? Well, I met him uh, interviewing him for the book, my my oh. book, and we just became friends. I think we talked for four or five hours the wow. first time, and he's just we just connected, um, and he's just a very giving person. I mean, no, yeah. what he'll do, this is what he does, and I don't, no other odd author would do this. No one. When I read for him, he'll sometimes say, "Listen, if you want." my autograph you want me to sign your book and these these lines are hours long um you can wait in line but if you buy mike's books you can go straight to the front isn't that nice isn't that amazing i mean who else would do that so people just out of wanting to get that getting through the line more quickly they'll buy my books and they'll sell out right and they'll talk to me for a second and then talk to Dave, but no one else is, is as giving no other writer. How many books did you bring that they sold? Like I would be like, shit, why didn't I bring more? Oh, I don't know. I mean, bookstores provide them. I'm guessing 50 maybe. And the 50 of each book. So um, there's a few books. There's a few books there. Yeah. Are you going out with them again soon? Yeah. And in fact, he just um, asked if I wanted to do a, some shows up in Maine and I'm going to beat my wife is from Maine, but we're not going to be there up there then. But he did very kindly ask me to be uh, open for him in Baltimore, which is what I've done in the past. I am from Maryland, South of Baltimore um, near the Virginia line. Oh, that'd be great. I love Baltimore. And yeah, last time I invited uh, John Waters. Wow. Uh, someone on, whose work I absolutely love and have been in touch with. And he showed up uh, to the reading and got, got to see me read. I actually read something from the, uh, Woodmont College catalog um, and threw in a John Waters reference just to appease him. Oh, that's funny. Wow. This is Mike. I want to thank you so much. This has been a very uh, illuminating talk for me to hear from your, your side of the world. Tell me, let me, let me plug your books again and, and tell me how people can follow you and find you and, and your podcast. Tell me, plug away. 
Yeah, I am on uh, everything, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Blue Sky, every, the new uh, piss stream or whatever it is for Instagram. Threads. I forget what. Threads, it's threads. Yes. I couldn't even get on Blue Sky. I don't know. Good for you. Yeah, someone asked me if I wanted to get it. I had no idea what it was, but I'll say yes to anything. And um, <laughs> I have my own site, MikeSacks.com, and then I'm also a Wikipedia page as well. And honestly, I know what it was like to start off and not to know anyone. If anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm at MikeBSacks at gmail.com. I'll answer any questions. Uh, it is not as hard as you might think to publish a book. And I always encourage people to do so because I love to see people skirting the system to get what they want made. I think that's very important. Don't ever think that there's someone between you and success, especially when it comes to comedy. Yeah, Anyone can do it. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Wow, that's very kind and generous of you. That's very nice of you. Mike, thank well, you so much. Thank you. Thank it, you, man. It, it, thank you again. Don't go anywhere. I want to sign out. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, lots of great resources on my website, michaeljammon.com. Sign up. we got free, another webinars coming up and my, my newsletter. All right. Until next week, keep writing. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jammon and Phil Hudson. If you're interested in learning more about writing, make sure you register for Michael's monthly webinar at michaeljammon.com slash webinar. If you found this podcast helpful, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. For free screenwriting tips, follow Michael Jammon on social media at Michael Jammon Writer. You can follow Phil Hudson on social media at Phil A. Hudson. This podcast was produced by Phil Hudson. It was edited by Dallas Crane. Music by Ken Joseph. Until next time, keep writing.